with me in your Bibles to two uh, verses in uh, in uh, Mark's Gospel. Uh, I'm sorry, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16 and verse 16. Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 16, The law and the prophets were until John. From that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached, and every man entereth violently into it. And the gospel of Matthew, and chapter 11, The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, and verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and men of violence take it by force. Shall we bow together? In a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you as we come into your presence this evening, as we have sought to worship you this night, that when we turn to your word, you have made available to us all the energies and powers, all the grace and that wisdom of our Lord Jesus in the person of the Holy Spirit. And we want to avail ourselves of that anointing, both for my speaking and our hearing. That, Lord, this time may not be misspent, neither in vain, but, Lord, we may meet with thee and receive from thee. So together, Lord, by faith, we stand into all that provision that you have made for us for this night. Make this time live with your presence with your working, with your speaking, Lord. And we shall give to you all the praise and all the glory in the name of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Amen. I think you all know that the theme of this time is Thy Kingdom Come. And uh, my uh, responsibility in... um, This theme has been the gospel of the kingdom. And um, we have already had two times on this matter of the gospel of the kingdom. I sought to introduce the subject in that first time. And um, now, uh, in the second time, we have spoken about the grace of God as the foundation of that kingdom. It is not on our pedigree or on our natural qualifications or our knowledge or our zeal or our devotion, but all God's dealings in this kingdom from our introduction to it right through to our being brought to the aim and objective of it is by the grace of God. Now, this evening... 
I want to take this matter one step further, and I want to start with uh, this very strange statement of the Lord Jesus about the kingdom of God suffering violence, and men of violence taking it by force. It must seem to many people who think of Jesus, gentle, meek, and mild, a very strange uh, statement. They might almost wonder whether someone misquoted it or, 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 or misinterpreted it. But here we have it not only in Matthew's Gospel, but also in Luke. The way Luke records it is that every man entereth it, that is the kingdom of God, via now, I find this very interesting because <clears throat> there is a common and I think erroneous idea about the gospel, very prevalent in Christian circles, both evangelical and charismatic, uh, that the gospel is really a very simple matter. It is just something to do with the forgiveness of God. And, um, and a kind of conversion. But actually the gospel of the kingdom is infinitely more. When we look at the Acts of the Apostles, we find a very interesting thing. We find this phrase again and again. It says, and Paul preached the kingdom of God. Or it says, preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. We discover that this good news, this, this gospel, this good news of God's kingdom, of God's kingship, is far more than merely being forgiven. That is the initial thing. But the fact of the matter is that this gospel, the presence of this kingdom of God, the preaching of this kingdom of God, the presence and preaching of the kingship of God always challenges people. There's no way that the kingdom of God can be present or preached, and it does not challenge men and women. It confronts us. It confronts us with reality. It confronts us with eternal reality. It forces us to decision. Now that is the gospel of the kingdom. It is not merely to do with salvation, nor even only accepting the kingship of God, the kingship of the Lord Jesus. It is also a question of our kingship of our being educated, trained, disciplined, brought by spiritual growth to the place where we can administer the will of God, where we can come to the throne of God. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. Therefore, this matter of the gospel of the kingdom has very much to do with character, lasting, eternal, genuine character. 
it has very much to do with experience, real and genuine experience of God. It has very much to do with growth, spiritual growth to maturity. Genuine growth to maturity, not just growth in the head, in academic knowledge, in a kind of theology, but a, a, a growth within our very being in both experience and in character. Now that leads me to look at this matter in three ways, all of which are related. And the first thing I want to underline tonight in this matter of the good news of the kingship of God is the required violence. <laughs> the required violence. Violence is required if you and I are going to reach the goal of God's kingdom. If you and I are going to come to the end of the Lord, if you and I are going to realize the, um, uh, the very significance of the gospel for us, then you and I uh, are required um, to exercise violence. Please look at these scriptures. In Luke chapter 16 and verse 16, the kingdom of God, uh, Luke 16 verse 16, the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached and every man entereth into it violently. I don't think this means that your um, new birth is violent. Um, uh, what I believe it means is this, that you can only enter into the kingship of God in experience. In experience. You can only have that character of kingship produced in you and me which will bring us to the throne of the Lamb, bring us to the throne of God. Only if you and I are prepared to be violent. Now we have to be violent not with one another, as is so often the case in Christian circles, but violent with oneself. And this word violence is interesting because most of us mollycoddle ourselves. We wrap ourselves up in cashmere and silk. We beautifully care for ourselves. What we feel others should go through, the way they should be disciplined, is something quite different to the way that we look after ourselves. But every man can only realize the end of the gospel, the goal of the gospel, if he enters it into this matter violently. Now look again at Matthew and chapter uh, uh, 11 and, and verse 12. And we have it put perhaps even more clearly. Um, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and men of violence take it 
by force. Now, there's no getting away from this. It's not as if somehow or other this word violence has very unfortunately got into the record and shouldn't really be there. We are told quite clearly the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. This kingship of God suffers violence, and men of violence take it by force. You can't get away from that. No amount of theological acrobatics will enable us to get out of this matter. Here there is a required violence. Only those children of God, born of God's Spirit, who are prepared to be men and women of violence, can take this kingship of God. It has to be taken by force. Apparently, please listen carefully, apparently it is not enough to believe in the kingdom. Every child of God that I know who's had a real experience of the Lord Jesus believes in the kingdom. But there are very few children of God I know who have kingship in their character. Now why? It is not just a matter of sitting there apathetically, almost indifferently, impartially, saying, I believe this, I believe this, I believe in the coming kingdom, thy kingdom come. Oh, it's going to be wonderful when the Lord comes, when the Messiah comes, and his reign extends to the ends of the earth. How wonderful, how marvelous it will be. It's not just a question of believing in some kingdom. It is a matter of taking some kind of action. Now, let me put it another way. It seems to me, if I'm honest with myself, and I'm sure it's the same with you, that there is a deep resistance in us to the kingship of God. Even though we're saved, even though we're born of the Spirit of God, even though we believe in the word of God, still there is within us a deep resistance. And unless you and I are prepared spiritually to use violence with ourselves, there's no way forward. There's no way you and I are going to enter into the kingship of God. There's no way you and I are going to come to the throne of God. There's no way that we are going to submit to the discipline of God, to the education of God, to those tribulations and afflictions that will come our way in God's school of kingship. We have to be violent with ourselves. The goal of the gospel, the aim of God for his kingdom will never be realized without such violence on our part. Now I want to take you to a few other scriptures so that no one has any excuse in this matter. I want to take you to one of the letters of the Apostle Paul, the Philippian letter, 
chapter 3 to a reasonably well-known verse. Verse 12. Now listen to this very carefully. Not that I have already obtained or am already made perfect, but I press on, if so be, that I may lay hold on that for which Christ, I was also laid hold on by Christ Jesus. Now, I think this word, lay hold on, is a very interesting word. And um, I imagine that most of us don't really think of it in the way that we ought to think of it. Actually, in Greek, it is a word for the policeman arresting a criminal. That's the way it's used. The old version, the old King James version, used that the word apprehend. Now, when you apprehend some of this, this isn't just sort of getting to know them, as some people imagine. Apprehend is when a hand is laid on your shoulder and you are arrested by an officer of the law. You're apprehended. Now that's Old English, very sadly, of course, here in the United States, when you seceded from England, you also seceded from the English language. <laughs> And um, one has to say that, well, it come on, comes up again and again against problems in English with American English. English, English, and American English. I always remember when I first came to the United States many years ago, a little caption on the New York Times, English is the language which divides the United States from the United Kingdom. <laughs> well, here we have it, apprehension. That I may apprehend that for which also I was apprehended by Christ Jesus. Let's put it another way. That I may arrest that for which I also was arrested by Christ Jesus. Let's put it another way. That I may lay hold on that for which I also was laid hold on by Christ Jesus. I thank God that in my little life the Lord Jesus took hold of me violently. He took hold of me when I had no idea of him or what he was or who he was or anything. I had never even read the scripture when I was 12 years of age. I had never been to synagogue nor to chapel nor to church but I remember that day when the Lord Jesus took hold of me. Now when he first took hold of me and I saw the Lord, it I had no idea what it all meant. I didn't understand. I just knew that I I'd, somehow he was alive. He he was real, he was the Messiah, and he was the Savior. That's all I knew. I had no idea that when he took hold of me, it was for a purpose. It was years afterwards I began to discover that it isn't just to be drab, little, anemic, colorless Christians sitting in rows in meetings, looking at one another, waiting until we grow toothless and blind, and finally we shall be transported into some heavenly kingdom where we shall be part of an eternal choir forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. This kind of gospel that has been preached, which has brought this whole matter into disrepute, is so sad. It is so limiting. It is so destructive. 
It is absolutely true. There is nothing more wonderful than to be forgiven. There is nothing more wonderful to know your sins cancelled, blotted out as a thick cloud. There, there is nothing more wonderful than to be saved, to be delivered from the power of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear Son. But my dear friends, that's not the end of the matter. God has a purpose, 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 do, do, when, when, I'm but not in the throne. We sang a little um, chorus, I hate that word chorus, but you know a little scripture song a few days ago about there being no more tears there, there'll be tearless there, there'll be... Uh, do you know, my dear friends, I'm sorry to have to tell you that the scripture says there will be tears there. Not all the time, but he says God will wipe away all tears. I've often wondered why we would cry. Will it be just the relief of being there? Will it be the wonder of finally being in the presence of God that causes us to burst into tears? Could it be that for some of us it will be regret that we misspent Time, lost opportunities, we never, by violence, laid hold on that for which also we were laid hold on. We're saved. But we have not reached the end of the Lord. Now, my dear friends, this, I think, is a, an amazing subject. And when I read the Apostle Paul, I find it so unbelievable. This greatest of all our rabbis. This man who spoke of himself so clearly in this testimony, the most remarkable testimony, I think, in the Bible. This man who said that to be a Jew was in every way to have value. But here in this testimony he says, I count it all loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Here is a man who is not just preaching a truth, he is manifesting it. Here is someone who has truly exercised violence with himself. 
He is laying hold on that for which also Christ Jesus laid hold on him. My dear friend, I think that's worth a lot of reflection and meditation. Of course, it's not only there. If you want to go with me elsewhere, I can take you to the first letter of the, Paul, of the Apostle Paul to his son Timothy. And here in chapter 6 and verse 12, here we read these words. Sadly, most Christians only know this in him for. Fight the good fight of faith. <laughs> Lay hold on life eternal whereunto ye were called. Now, note it, it's not just coasting along, it's not just being carried along, it's not just drifting in some kind of spiritual relaxation, some passive current of the Spirit of God, just being passively carried along by the power of God. Here is the word of the Apostle at the end of one of his last letters to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on life eternal whereunto you were called. In other words, what the apostle is saying is this. You, my son Timothy, you stand to lose everything but your salvation if you don't fight the good fight of faith. If you don't lay hold on that life eternal to which you have been called. I sometimes wonder whether many of us do not experience resurrection life, eternal life, the life of God in the Lord Jesus, because we don't lay hold on it. We seem to think we're the recipients of eternal life, and that's all that matters, it's there. But we have to lay hold on it. We have to, by faith, stand into it. We have to fight the good fight of faith. Now many Christians, as we've already made reference to, are fighting another kind of fight. Very often it's a fight with one another. Everywhere I go in Christian work and in fellowships I find people fighting with one another. Oh, it's not a good fight. It's fighting the bad fight. This is a fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Now this isn't just a one-off matter. If you look in the same chapter, uh, 6 of 1 Timothy, and verse 19, we have exactly the same thing again, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on the life, which is life indeed. Laying hold on the life, which is life indeed. Turn back again to yet another uh, reference in the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians and chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 26. I therefore so run as not uncertainly, so fight I as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and bring it into bondage, lest by any means after that I have preached to others, I myself should be rejected. 
He, of course, is not talking about salvation. He is talking about an inheritance. He is talking about the kingship. He is talking about the throne. And he is saying here in this unbelievable um, little window into his heart, I, I don't run in an uncertain way. I'm quite clear as to what the goal is. I don't box, that's the word in Greek, I don't box the air. I, I, I'm, I'm doing it in a way that I'm bruising my body. I'm actually discipline, disciplining my body. This is the same thing, isn't it? It's uh, this whole matter of violence. If you go to the Gospels, there's one, this is all encapsulated in one little statement that has always intrigued me in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 22 Hang on. I've lost it. It's moved. <laughs> but I know the story very well. You can all find it yourself. Do you remember when Jesus said that it was impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? And then he used an unbelievable illustration. He said it is as impossible to push a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now this sounds like good, radical, revolutionary talk. I always think camels are most extraordinary creatures. I, I have a fondness for camels. I uh, always remember a brother who told me a camel is a horse put together by a committee. <laughs> um, I, I don't agree. I think the camel is one of the most remarkable creatures in the world. And when people tell me this creature evolved, I just can't believe it. I can only believe that someone with immense humor created the camel. And here is the Lord Jesus talking about a camel. Do you know what I'm talking about? About that great camel, our camel, not the Bactrian camel of China and Central Asia with the two humps, it's smaller, but that great dromedary camel, the one-humped camel. Can you imagine trying to push that camel through the eye of a needle? Now some people say this eye of the needle was a little door in one of the gates of Jerusalem that they used to take the camels in when they came late, but they had to take everything off the camel to allow the camel to go through. You can discount it. No Jewish merchantman will ever leave his goods outside of the city wall. You can forget that altogether. It's absolute nonsense. As if he would take the camel inside and leave the goods outside. It's so stupid. <laughs> Having transported them 
hundreds of miles. Now he leaves them outside where brigands and robbers are. I mean, these Christian interpretations are unbelievable. The fact of the matter is, you take a little needle, a little needle, and you see the eye of a needle, and you see a camel with those wonderful face that it looks. You couldn't even get the snout of a camel through the eye of a needle. Can you imagine all the humor of the Lord? Can you imagine people getting a camel and pushing it and pushing it and pushing it and pushing it and somehow trying to get it through that eye of the needle? It's impossible. And then the Lord brought home the punchline. No more can a rich man enter the kingdom of God or the kingship of God than a camel goes through the eye of a needle. Now we immediately think, oh, we know what the Lord's talking about. He's talking about riches. He means because it comes just after the story of the rich young ruler. When Jesus said, there's only one thing you lack. Go, sell all that you have and come, follow me. And he turned away sorrowfully. But Peter and the other apostles understood something far more than just a question of a literally rich man. Because Peter said, and apparently the others assented with him, then Lord, who can be saved? Now, Peter was not a rich man. I have stood in Tiberias, in Capernaum, by the Lake of Galilee, by Peter's little home. They discovered it some years ago. That little home is literally from here to those steps. It was the first house church in Galilee. It was there that Jesus stayed, in one little tiny room. He wasn't a rich man. Now, it's possible that Matthew, Levi, was a rich man because he was a tax collector. And most of them were pretty wealthy because they took bribes on the side. And uh, they, they became quite uh, uh, wealthy. John came from a very good family. Uh, 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 but Peter uh, and Andrew, very poor. Here is Peter saying, then who can be saved? He had understood something. It wasn't just a matter of wealth. Apparently it was self-sufficiency. Any trust in yourself, whether it's in your intellect, whether it's in your ingenuity, whether it's in your resources, whether it's in your personality, whether it's in your background, whether it's in your pedigree, whether it's in your property, whether it's in your professional status... It doesn't matter what it is, but if you trust in those things, it is impossible for you to come into the kingdom of God. Now do you understand what it means? The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and men of violence take it by force. There is something within us that resists this kind of thing. Why should I let go of my intellect? Why should I let go of my ingenuity? Why should I let go of my natural resources? Why should I let go of my pedigree? Why should I let go of my professional status? Why should I let go of my money if that's what I trust? It needs violence. Now that leads me to the second thing I want to say. And that is, I want to talk, in this matter to do with the gospel of the kingdom, about the inescapable cost. Now this is the complement to all I said yesterday morning about the grace of God. Because 
the Lord Jesus did everything required for you to enter the kingdom of God. And that foundation of his finished work and of his grace remains forever. There is no way to enter the kingdom of God, no way to progress in the kingdom of God, no way to reach the throne of God, but by that grace of the Lord Jesus. But my dear friends, it would be entirely false of me if I were to leave you with an idea that the gospel does not cost. This is the missing note in modern gospel preaching. Whenever the Lord Jesus preached this gospel, wherever he preached it, though he healed the sick and raised the dead and cleansed the leper, wherever Jesus went, he confronted men and women with the inescapable cost of the kingdom of God. You can be saved, but my dear friend, listen to me. You can be saved, you can be born of the Spirit of God, but you will not move a step or two in that kingdom unless you're prepared for the cost. The Lord Jesus spoke of following him. And somehow or other in this modern kind of gospel preaching it seems as if it's a bed of roses. You come to the Lord Jesus and you'll be wafted along, blown along, almost catapulted along by some great force. You will not have to do anything you wanted to pay, anything you'll just be taken right the way through to the throne of God. My dear friends, it is not true for the Lord Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. This was not some elite luxury experience for special saints. This was his gospel. This was all to do with the grace of God, which only can save us, which can only cancel our sins, which can only bring us to a place where we're justified in the sight of God. But then if you and I are going to come to the goal of that gospel, to the end of the Lord in the kingdom of God, then you and I have a price to pay. Now, what is that price? I suggest it is you. It is your self-life, my self-life. If that self-life of yours, that self-life of mine, is left untouched, unbroken, undisciplined, uncrucified, it will be our undoing. We can never reach the throne of God unless that self-life is dealt with. Take a few scriptures. Look at Mark, for instance, chapter 8. Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. 
verse 34 and 35. And he called unto him the multitude with his disciples and said unto them, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever would save his life shall lose it. And whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. Now the Lord Jesus used that word self-life, soul-life, if you like, however you like to put it. The psyche. That life. If I hold on to it, I lose it. If I lose it, I find it. This is the inescapable cost that is involved in the gospel of the kingdom. Look again at Matthew chapter 16. We have exactly the same thing again in Matthew's gospel chapter 16. Verse 20. 24 and 25 Then said Jesus unto his disciples If any man would come after me Let him deny himself and take up his cross And follow me For whosoever would save his life shall lose it And whosoever shall lose his life for my sake Shall find it Take again Mark's gospel oh, I'm sorry Matthew's gospel Chapter 10 And verse 38 and 39 and he that doth not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Look again, if you're not convinced, at John's Gospel and chapter 12 and verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it abideth by itself alone. But if it die, it beareth much fruit. He that loveth his life loseth it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will the Father honor. Now here we find in the gospel of the kingdom that the Lord Jesus preached. Will you notice that Mark tells us it wasn't just to an inner circle of very special elite superior disciples, but he brought the whole multitude together as if the Lord Jesus was saying, this is the gospel of the kingdom. If you and I want not only to enter into the kingdom, to see the kingdom, but to reach the throne of God, then you and I are going to have to face the cross. It is not very popular in these days when the whole of our generation talks about rights. To understand that the inescapable cost of following the Lord Jesus means the voluntary sacrifice of your rights. Let him deny himself. 
Take up his cross and follow me. You must understand that we have the wisdom of hindsight. We know that Jesus died on the cross. So now we look back at these words of his in the light of what happened on the cross. But can you imagine those disciples? You see, it was a very common sight in Jerusalem to see those sentenced to death by the Roman authorities carrying the broad beam of the cross with their sentence hanging round their neck, or if they were slightly more wealthy, a serpent would go before them carrying it. But anybody carrying a cross beam was already sentenced to death. They had the sentence of death within themselves. They had no more rights. They were on their way to the execution. Now Jesus takes from that kind of picture and he says, settle it in your heart. If you are going to understand the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingship of God, if you're going to come to that kingship yourself, if you're going to come as one of his sons to glory, if you're going to come to his throne and sit with him in his throne, then you've got to settle this matter of rights. This is what it means to deny yourself. It doesn't mean all that kind of thing, that heavy kind of religious piety that is just a question of dressing in dark clothes and looking morbid and miserable and singing slow hymns like a funeral march and having your head permanently bent down with your eyes on the ground. It's a, that is religion. That is religion. That is not the cross of our Lord Jesus. The cross of our Lord Jesus is the way by which he brings us into life. Life and more life and even more life. The Lord Jesus never spoke of his crucifixion without in the same breath speaking of his resurrection. He never spoke of losing your life without finding your life. He never spoke of going down but the God would lift you up. In the end, my dear friends, here is the inescapable cost of the gospel of the kingdom. I want to suggest to you that our problem is very simple. We can't trust. You see, when the Lord says to me, now Lance, you've got a very vibrant self-life. You've got uh, a self-life which you love. I've noticed from the day you were born that you've loved it very much. You have looked after it. You've cultivated it. You have made it as educated and sophisticated as you can. You love it. Then it's your darling. Now, I, I, I want to tell you that if you hang on to that self-life of yours that you love so much, you're going to lose it. But if you will lose it, for my sake and the gospels you will find it now I say to myself how long Lord <laughs> you see if I could put it on the altar just like that and just take it back do you understand what I mean just put it on the altar quickly and then take it back in an instant that should be alright Lord Lord be over in an instant like one of these new dental appointments you know so quick but my dear friends, once you've let go of that life of yours, there's no telling how long the Lord will let it, leave it down there. Do you understand? 
And then comes the thought. Maybe if I let go of my life for his sake and the gospel, he'll forget me. He'll forget me altogether. He'll go off to the great people, like the watchman knees and, 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 and the really great people who made that. He'll think of them, but me, he might forget in the busyness of the kingdom, he's going to forget me. So I think it's better for me to hold on to it. <laughs> better, as we say in an old English saying, better the devil I know than the one I don't. So I think I'll hold on to that life of mine because it's safe with me. I'm in charge of it, I know exactly, I know all its faults and failings, but if I hang on to it, it'll be okay. My dear friends, you hold on to your life, you lose it. It turns to ashes in your hands. That life that you thought would be so interesting, so full, so vibrant, it decays, it corrupts, and in the end it brings you almost to the place of suicide, even as a believer. You are so in despair over your own self-life. No wonder you and I need to exercise violence. There's no other way. But it's not just violence. You cannot exercise violence if you don't have faith. You must really trust the Lord that he wants the best for you. And that he's going to do the best for you. I have pointed out to some of you before, but it needs to be pointed out again, that these words of our Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 16 were prefaced by a most remarkable incident. It says in both cases, in verse 31, I think it is, in Mark chapter 8, and in Matthew's gospel, uh, verse 21, it, it starts like this, and Jesus began to tell them that he would go up to Jerusalem, be rejected of the chief priests, and crucified, and on the third day, rise again. And Peter, dear Peter, Peter who gets all the blame for being impulsive and impetuous, but in actual fact, the scripture tells us that all the others said the same. But nobody ever thinks of that. Poor old Peter was one of those people who always opened his mouth and spoke for the rest. And then the rest kept quiet and they could all disappear. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And Peter was left there, always in trouble. <laughs> and so Peter says, Lord, never! We are not looking for some Messiah that's going to be crucified, executed on a Roman gibbet. Never! We won't allow it. I'll stand there myself, Lord. I won't allow a person to lay a hand on you. Well, these are very sweet sentiments. Faithful sentiments, loyal sentiments. And they brought a quite uncalled for response from the Lord Jesus. Get thee behind me, Satan. You don't mind the things of God, you mind the things of men. Now, my dear child of God, if you came to me with such a problem about your self-life and you were saying, no, I'm not going to do that, I'll never go that way, that's not the gospel, that's not the gospel for me, I, my gospel's all joy and peace, you know, and fullness and, and satisfaction and, and I don't like this thing you're talking about. And I said to you, get behind me, Satan, 
you would go to Brother Stephen and say, I think that was the most terrible thing that any visiting speaker in Richmond has ever said. It's one thing for you to, for me to have said to you, I think you're thinking negative thoughts. <laughs> or if I were to say to you, you know, I think that's wrong thinking the way you're thinking. That's quite pleasant. Or even if I said, now be careful, I think Satan is manipulating your mind. Even that's nicer. But to look straight in your eyes and say, get back. Behind me, Satan! That is the most terrible thing! Satan! Here was a child of God. This child of God, only a few moments before, had said, Thou art the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus had said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He had revelation. He was devoted to the Lord Jesus. He had followed the Lord Jesus. He had given everything up to be with the Lord Jesus. And now Jesus said to him, looking into his eyes, Get behind me, Satan! Dear child of God, if you and I have an uncrucified self-life, it's the playground of Satan. No matter how noble it is, no matter how cultured it is, no matter how beautiful it is, no matter how educated it is, it is the playground of Satan. There is no way that you and I will reach the throne of God with that unbroken self-life. Satan will see to it. He will let us go a certain way and then he will play on our circumstances, play on our emotions, play on our feelings until he has destroyed us. That's why Jesus said, you don't mind the things of God. You mind the things of men you can't help of. In Matthew's version, it's put like this. You're a stumbling block to me. Oh, my dear friends, how many servants of God I have known, I pray to God I'm not included, who are stumbling blocks to their own ministry. Stumbling blocks to the fulfillment of the very ministry and work God has given them to do. I know them all over the world. People who've yearned to see something happen, people who long to see God work, and are themselves without hardly knowing it, the stumbling block to everything that God wants to do. We are the witnesses. Do I have to go beyond the United States? Do a whole number of ministries, true ministries of God, truly anointed by God, in some cases truly raised up by God, but which have got into the most terrible mess because of unbroken self-life. Will you suffer me a little longer on this matter? I remember when the Lord met with Moses and he was going to send him to Pharaoh. He said to Moses, what is that in your hand? And Moses said, Oh Lord, it's a, a rod. Now what was that rod? 
Those of you who know your Bibles will remember that wonderful psalm written in King David's youth when he was but a lad. Thy rod and thy star, they comfort me. Moses had been a shepherd for 40 years and as so often we see in just near where I live, we see the shepherd with his rod. It was as if the Lord said, what is that? And Moses said, it's the emblem of my work, Lord. It, it's my rod. I, I couldn't do anything without this rod. Actually, this rod God was going to use all through Moses' life. It was the rod that he lifted up over the Red Sea when it parted into two. It was the rod that he pointed at the rock when water came out of it. This rod, God used it. It was an emblem. And then God said, throw it on the ground. Lay it down. Lose it. And Moses threw it down. And in an instant, that inanimate piece of wood became a viper. A sand viper in Hebrew, a nahash. This is the most poisonous of the sand uh, uh, snakes. And the moment Moses, who had lived 40 years in the wilderness, let alone 40 years earlier in Egypt, the moment he saw it, he fled from it. You don't throw a snake down on the ground without it getting a bit angry. Especially a sand viper or a horned viper. And as Moses ran, the Lord said, Moses, come back. <laughs> and Moses turns it, never Lord, now put that thing on the ground. Now Moses, take it up by the tail. Now, I know, I know Ernie did this, and I didn't mean to say this. And I'm not getting my own back on Ernie at all, really. I share his horror of snakes. But the one thing you never do is take up a poisonous snake by the tail. Anyone who's lived in the desert for 40 years knows that. You just don't do that. If you do, it will curl around and sting you. What an extraordinary thing the Lord said to Moses. Throw that rod down. It became a snake. I can imagine no, Moses saying, my, my goodness. I've had that thing with me beside my bed for the last 40 years. I've had it inside my robe. Sometimes in cold weather. I've whacked sheep with it. I've done all kinds of things with it. I had no idea it was a poisonous snake. And now the Lord said, Take it up by the tail. I can imagine Moses saying, Lord, do you really mean it? And the Lord said, take it up by the tail. Now Moses was a man. And a man's man. I know he was the meekest of all the men on the earth. As people imagine that that means he was weak. But he was a hero of the Libyan campaign. The hero of the Ethiopian campaign. And decorated by Pharaoh. He was a man's man. And I can imagine that inside, if I know anything about it, he quaked. But outwardly he went forward and he took the tail. And instantly it became a rod again. And this was the rod that every one of the plagues of Egypt 
was brought by. And the sea, the Red Sea, was parted. Now, my dear friends, do you begin to understand something? He that loseth his self-life shall find it. And he that holds on to it or seeks to preserve it will lose it. That poison will kill you if you hold on to it. The only way you and I can come to the throne of God is by laying down ourselves. This is the inescapable cost. Now, <clears throat> I don't know why, but so often in Christian circles, especially in recent years, there's been almost a dichotomy between the work of the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit. As if these two works are in opposition. As if an experience of the Holy Spirit is all power, all fullness, all gifts, all joy, all ecstasy, and the cross is all affliction and all heaviness and all brokenness and all darkness. But my dear friends, it's not so. I read the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 and I find them very interesting. He described his ministry, the heart of his ministry, as baptizing with the Spirit. Just as he described the heart of John the Baptist's ministry as baptism in water, of repentance. This is what he said, chapter 3. And verse 11, I indeed baptize you in water unto repentance. This, I'm sorry, this is John the Baptist. I'm, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. I wonder why that is so often forgotten. He shall baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. Now just let's get it clear what he means. Whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly cleanse his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the garner but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. Now <coughs> can you get this clear? This grain has a husk and a kernel. Have you got it? It's the same grain. It has a husk and a kernel. The kernel is the value. The chaff is the rubbish. Have you got it? Have you got it? When the Holy Spirit does his work in us, God gets the grain and Satan gets the chaff. He burns it up. Now why is it that we don't understand this in the work of the Holy Spirit? As if the cross can work apart from the Holy Spirit. May I put it this way? The work of the cross is a work. The Holy Spirit is a person. 
It is the Holy Spirit who takes the work of the cross as fire and burns up everything that is not of God. The chaff and gathers everything that is of the Lord to be kept and guarded forever. Now, dear child of God, if you begin to understand this, now you will understand the inescapable cost. I firmly believe in experience of the Holy Spirit. There are those who have experience of the Holy Spirit right at their new birth, and I thank God for that, and I am myself persuaded that the term baptism of the Spirit covers the whole work of the Holy Spirit, both his indwelling and his anointing, his indwelling and his empowering, if you like. But the fact of the matter is, in these days of superficiality, these days of cheap decision, these days when there's a gospel preached which sounds more like a presidential election campaign than a call to repentance, there are very few people who understand anything about the Holy Spirit when they're saved. And that means, just as we didn't understand the cross when we were saved, we have to, by the blessed ministry of the Holy Spirit, step by step we come into our understanding. I can well remember when I first understood that when Christ was crucified, I had been crucified. What a revelation it was. And I can remember the first time I ever understood that the Holy Spirit was in me. And upon me. It has been one of the greatest joys in my own little life to get to know the Holy Spirit as a person. I shudder when I hear people speaking of him as it. In the same way that I can't, I find it so hard when Jesus is spoken of as a commodity, as an it, a life. A food. Of course Jesus is alive. Of course Jesus is food. But he's a person. A person to come to know. A person to discover. A person to experience. A person to walk with. Here then is the inescapable cost of the gospel of the kingdom. There's no way to follow the Lord Jesus without the cross. There is no way to know the work of the Holy Spirit and be safe unless we're prepared for the cost. May God help us. And lastly, I want to speak, I don't know how to describe this last, and I'm very nervous almost of even touching on it. I tell you why I'm nervous. Because our brother Watchman Lee once spoke about it, of course I wasn't present. But it seems to me that one cannot talk about the gospel of the kingdom without touching on that amazing incident when that dear lady bought the most precious thing in her home and household and broke it 
and anointed him. Now, in the ancient days, in every Jewish home, people thought a lot about death. In the Jewish tradition, death is always an enemy, never a friend. And I must say, that's how I view it. But the Jew <coughs> always thought about death. This lady, as far as I can see, was not a wealthy lady. But she had what was sold. We have some of these now in the Israel Museum, the Rockefeller Museum in Jerusalem. These um, alabaster vases. They were just about that, about that wide. And they had a stone alabaster stopper. And they had some kind of glue that glued them. You bought this to keep for when the relative died. Or when you died. And then it was broken. And it was used. Because, you see, living in many homes poor people. They didn't have the money to suddenly go up, out when su suddenly someone died and buy a whole pound of liquid nard. So they used to buy it when they, in a good day, when they had a bit of money. Or sometimes a husband would bring it home as a gift. Or sometimes a relative who came into a little windfall would buy it and give it to his sister or give it to his brother to be kept in the home. And this was always stored. You see, even the alabaster vessel itself was very, very valuable. Especially in a poor home. And so, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, and Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, we have an amazing story told. There were all kinds of people in and out talking with the Lord Jesus, and quite a lot of business going on, and Suddenly this lady appeared with her alabaster cruise. I don't know how she broke it. She would have been careful, for she didn't want to get splinters in it. But she probably struck it on something, perhaps on the stone floor, and then poured it quickly into a bowl. And while Jesus was still talking, she began to anoint his head and his feet. And the disciples were horrified. Judas, in particular, was the most horrified of them all. He said, this is terrible. Terrible Lord, stop this woman. Do you realize what she's done? She's taken the whole way, the wages of a whole year and wasted them in this stupid act. And Jesus said, oh, of course they said, you know, we could have could have used this on evangelism I and mean, we could have used this on the poor and Jesus said you'll always have the poor with you but you won't always have me this woman has wrought a good work she has anointed me for my burial now my dear friends have you got it of all the eleven apostles, of all those disciples, this dear 
almost insignificant woman. According to Matthew Mark, we don't even know her name. She was the only one who understood that Jesus was going to the cross. And she wanted to do something, don't you see it? She wanted to do something that was supremely worship. She wanted to express an identification with him, a union with him, an understanding with him, if you like, a standing with him. She wanted to enter into his sorrow in some small way and, and be with him. The rest ate their meal and were satisfied. They had no idea Jesus was about to die. They discussed little theological details. I have no doubt if I know anything about believers. Talked about this little point and that. What did you mean by this? What did you mean about I think he meant this. No, I don't think so. What did Moses say? What did Jeremiah say? What did Ezekiel say? So the discussion went backwards and forwards. They were totally unaware of the shadow of the cross. But this one little lady, by the Spirit of God, she understood. Now, you must understand our culture. In the Jewish culture, women are very free. They're not like in some other cultures where women are bound. Women have a very amazing, as they do I think in Chinese homes, a very um, a remarkable position um, in the household. But they cannot push their way in when the men are present. How do you begin to understand? She couldn't just come in and say, Lord Jesus, I want to have a word with you. I understand where you're going. I want you to know I'm with you. She couldn't do that. And so into her heart came an idea. While they're all talking, I'll take my alabaster cruise and I'll bring it and I'll break it. They won't understand. But he will. This is the character that comes to the throne. This is the kind of person that the Spirit of God has dealt with and made sensitive. has given them an understanding that the others never have. Their heads can be filled with theology. Their heads can be filled with scripture. Their heads can be filled with all the activities so necessary in the life of the church and the work of God. But this woman, she had a heart that understood. I say that is the sacrificial worship which has to be the end of the gospel. And I think of the Apostle Paul in that marvellous word, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritually intelligent 
worshipped. Here was this dear sister, this dear lady. She'd never been to seminary. She'd never probably been to school. And yet she understood more than the whole eleven apostles put together. And if none of them stood with him in the hour of his need, she stood with him. That is the kind of person the Lord wants to share his throne. Now I have to say, I'm not like that. And I imagine many of you have to say of yourself, Oh, I wish to God that I could be like that. That the Spirit of the Lord could so deal with me, so deal with me in my routine life, so educate me, so discipline me, so train me, so bring me to the place where I give up my rights. That I can express fellowship with the Lord in a moment of tremendous need and crisis. I say I have been very nervous to bring this up because I don't think anyone will ever be able to, uh, to put it more clearly, more powerfully, more beautifully than Watchman Nee when he spoke about waste. My dear friends, many Christians are by their nature bureaucrats. They have a precision within them. They know exactly how much time to give to God and how much time not to. They can be so precise. My dear friends, Devotion is always extravagant. You can never worship the Lord in a precise way, in a bureaucratic way. Real worship is the pouring out of the heart. There is within it an extravagance that nobody but the Lord himself can understand. So here is the gospel of the kingdom. Do you know what the Lord Jesus said about this little lady? He said, Wheresoever this gospel is preached in the whole earth, this that she has done shall be told for a memorial or a testimony to her. As if the Lord was saying, I don't just want people saved. I don't even just want people spiritually educated. I want people who are in love with me. And, dear child of God, whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, that finds you and it finds me. Here then is the gospel of the kingdom. Shall we pray?
Lord, we want to thank you for that saving work that you have done in our lives in bringing us into a real experience of your grace and of your power. But Lord, forgive us that so often we hesitate when it comes to the cost. We don't know, Lord, sometimes how to take hold of that grace of yours to enable us to follow the whole way. We don't know, Lord, sometimes how to take hold of that grace and that power that you've made available to us so that, Lord, we can give up all right to ourselves, take up the cross, and follow you. Help us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit this night. Minister to each one of our hearts. That every one of us in this place this night may be enabled to say, Lord, I will follow you. No matter what the cost, no matter what the way, I will follow you and trust you. And Lord, when we think of this lady and how she brought that alabaster cruise filled with that precious liquid spikenard, Lord, there are many of us that have such alabaster cruises hidden away somewhere in our lives. And we've never been prepared to break it. We're almost afraid, Lord, of extravagance. We're almost afraid, Lord, of, of too much devotion, as if somehow we'll become fanatical or weird or unbalanced. Lord, by your Spirit, work in all our hearts and make us people who are worshippers in spirit and in truth. Those who can present their bodies a living sacrifice, holy and accessible.